Hello to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us today on Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert, brought to you by Music Men's Minds. Please enjoy episode 11 with Dr. Susan Rogers, a longtime professional music producer and leading researcher in the world of music cognition. There are so many mysteries still to be explored. And way down there at the base level is that mystery of why music gives us a sense of recognition, that recognizing ourselves. You, you, you can imagine that uh, later in life, if someone invites you to make music or join in with others making music, that you would feel very much like a part of you is coming up and going out there into the world and you are being asked to share yourself with others. Right. I had a professor, uh, I didn't take music courses, I was not a music uh, student, but I had a music uh, professor who said something about classical music that I think uh, is considered for all music is that your favorite stuff is both unique and inevitable. Hmm, nice. And imagine it being a different way, yet it is completely unique from anything else. The best songs, the best bands, the best people we like, the best sounds are very much like that. That stayed with me for years and years and years. That yeah. it's really, when you think about it, you're hearing it for the first time, but it's completely inevitable. You could not have imagined it any different way after you hear it. Yeah, it's. A, I think that's true. And uh, it feels intuitively true. And it's also another one of those great mysteries. Mm -hmm. Why? Why does it feel so right? There are plenty of mysteries in uh, the intersection of music and our human brains. And no doubt, you know, it's vibrational. I, I always take my arguments back to the basics, which I feel, and I don't know a lot about electromagnetic fields, but, you know, it feels good or it feels okay or it doesn't feel good at all. But I think that it's a vibrational connection. If, I, if I'm thinking correctly, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know because I don't know enough to uh, be able to say with any confidence, but uh, we know that everything is vibrating at different frequencies. So vibration is not special, it's the norm. And uh, because everything is vibrating, we, we, we've, we've, um, we don't, our bodies don't know any other way. Mm. So when we uh, feel in sync or in tune with something, that's certainly qualitatively different than feeling out of sorts or, or at odds with something. But what the actual dimension of that something is that would cause us to feel in tune with it or at odds with it, out of phase with it, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. I'd like to know more about it, but I don't know. Well, it has a connection of emotionality with you know, things in major keys and things in minor keys. And all of a sudden you can, you know, certainly in, in movie scoring, uh, you indicate so much about what's going on inside a character just with a note. Yes. Several notes. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, um, it's, it's a remarkable talent to be able to do that, to intuitively feel that and lead people and their expectations and their emotions about what they're seeing just by listening to a sound. Mm. The art of the film Next composer. Kind of yeah, the art of the film composer is amazing because they don't want to use lyrics, they don't want to interfere with the dialogue on the screen, and the opening scenes of the movie are, are happening, and the film composer has to let you know, here's what you can expect emotionally. This is what this movie's going to feel like. Here's the sort of journey we're going to take you on. And isn't that beautiful that wordlessly, that melody and that harmony and perhaps that rhythm can signify it's going to feel like this. And that's fairly universal, not completely, but fairly universal. Most most people around the world can recognize, oh, okay, I get that. I get what it is I'm about to feel. That increases your anticipation. Uh, music is truly, truly a language, uh, a wordless language. Uh, something interesting happened to me just about an hour ago. I was being interviewed by a um, a reporter for Wall Street Journal, and she's writing an article. And the uh, she asked, she called and asked to talk to me about the topic was your personal theme song. 
you have a personal theme song. And I couldn't quite understand the concept of having just one song that you feel expresses you, but we were talking about it in depth and I was saying, well, if you were to choose just one piece of music that expressed you, I suppose it would express maybe important characteristics of your personality, or maybe it would express your baseline mood state. Some people are naturally more happy than others. And, and uh, so maybe that's what it would do. Maybe it would express your value systems. Maybe it would express your ambitions or how you'd like people to think about you, what your goals are in this life. And then she asked me if I had a theme song, what would it be? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I haven't thought of having one song, but I can tell you it would be instrumental. And she said, why? And I said, because if I had to choose a piece of music to show the world, this is me, I definitely wouldn't want to use words. I would want to express myself the way a dog does uh, I, I, without words. This is who I am. Now, how remarkable is that? That pitches, pitch categories mm -hmm. can express who we are, but it can, it does. I think it's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, I've been thinking a lot about a term that I think you used with Dr. Tremo, which is a musical fingerprint, something that's unique to you and reflects you as a person. Um, and you also mentioned about how music can help us reconnect with ourselves. Um, when we talk about dementia and neurodegenerative diseases, a lot of the time we focus on not being able to recognize the people around you or settings. And we don't really talk about how it can affect our ability to recognize ourselves. Um, and so do you think that that is part of why music is so helpful for these diseases is it helps us recognize ourselves and therefore contexts and people? That's a nice way of putting it. And I hadn't thought about that before that dementia might disconnect you from yourself in that intimate way. That's interesting to think about. Yeah, I think the answer is yes, because of the many ways in which music listening, music playing is, is a different category, but just music listening, um, the many regions of the brain that it touches. You know, the, the right hemisphere for most of us for melody and for harmony and the left hemisphere for lyrics and the frontal lobe for analysis. And, oh, and this one's fun, the occipital lobe in the back, visualizations for the where your the, the things your mind pictures when you're listening to your favorite music it can be autobiographical memories or it can just be flights of fancy it can be all sorts of things and then you've got your cerebellum in the back there and you've got your motor cortex for um, picking up on the rhythm perception and and synchronizing to music that way so it's bound to tap into circuits that are still fully functional. If you've lost some functionality somewhere, it's gonna be hard to access, but music just kind of goes throughout the whole garden up there and says, all right, well, the tomatoes aren't up, but let's go over here and see if our rutabagas are doing good. You need to find something and, and make a connection there. And that makes it much more valuable as a, as a little explorer in the brain than mere words alone, that's for sure. So interesting. Love the, the metaphor of the garden because <laughs> I'm doing a lot of lay presentations. This will really hit home. So thank you. I'll give you credit. Well, thank you. Not all for I'm, I'm gardening now for the first time since I semi-retired and moved from my little condo in Boston to I'm out here in Cairo, New York. And I actually have, I have, I have room and I can give, do, do a garden. And I know some of the plants are thriving. Others, I don't know what's going on with them. I did everything I could. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't know the reason why, but certainly up here in this marvelous garden, um, some things just seem to take off on their own and they do quite well and they don't need a lot of attention from us. They, they, they thrive. And then there seem to be other circuits or other thoughts or other abilities that are not coming up. And, um, and we, have, we have to be okay with that. Uh, we can improve them as much as we can, but uh, if they're not going to grow, they're not going to grow. Focus on the ones that are. Love it. 
it's kind of interesting that certain, you know, they call them earworms or certain little melodies hit us and we just, whether we try or not, we cannot forget them. And mm-hmm. they're almost defining to our life at the moment. Uh, it's fascinating how it finds that place in the mind. It's, it's like a memory. And a lot of times we worry about that we, we're losing our memories, but sometimes a, a musical uh, uh, bar melody gets stuck in there and you, you can't shake it. <laughs> uh, there, there, were, there was a survey study, it was fairly comprehensive, it was fairly recent, that uh, investigated earworms in college students because they were trying to figure out what caused this particular song and not that song to get in your head. And one of the things that I remembered from that study is they asked people, is it annoying? Does it bother you? And most people said, no, it doesn't bother them. I relate to that. And, and isn't it true that often these earworm pieces aren't necessarily your favorite songs. Sometimes it's things you have you have no idea why that popped into your head at that particular moment. It didn't seem to be related to anything, but it sure can stick for a while. I think of it a little bit like mental chewing gum. It's not a full meal. It's just uh, your brain saying, I am a little bit bored right now. You know, I'd like a little treat. And it just pulls up some little fragment from memory, which is so easily consumed. It's not, it's not a thought that needs to lead somewhere. It's just merely a, a wee little nugget that's pleasant and that you don't mind having in your brain and comes and goes at, uh, of its own will. That's uh, the basis of so much advertising. <laughs> Katie, do you want to roll back and get to some questions? We've, we've been a good time <laughs> improvising here. <laughs> I was just going to say, just for our, the sake of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about your career background as a producer and sound engineer and how that inspired you to dig deeper into music cognition and perception. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, uh, like a lot of kids, just crazy about music. And some folks who are so crazy about music go on to become musicians. They take musical instrument lessons and they learn to play and write and sing and they join bands. But I had zero interest in that. I had an intense interest records. I wanted to help music come into the world. That felt like that would be the right spot for me. So I uh, started my career as an audio technician repairing audio equipment in Hollywood in the late 70s and uh, got my dream job in 1983. I was hired by my favorite artist in the world, Prince. Prince hired me to come to Minnesota, be his full-time technician, and he moved me into the recording engineer chair. So I was Prince's engineer for Purple Rain. Uh, For the next five years, a good long run for Prince. Uh, After that, I engineered and made records for other artists, eventually producing for many of them. I had a big hit record as a producer in the late 90s for the band Bare Naked Ladies from Canada. We had a big hit record. And um, that allowed me to do the thing I had fantasized, I thought I might really love, which is be a scientist. So I entered college as a freshman when I was 44 years old, did eight straight years, got my PhD in music perception and cognition, then came to Berkeley College of Music in Boston to teach music. So the thing that's been a running theme in my whole professional life is, I like to say that I've been a professional music listener. Listening to music as a record maker, I was paid for my ability to listen to music and respond to it. I studied how to listen to music and respond to it. And then I teach students how to, with any luck, get an audience to listen to their music and respond to it. Um, so I've spent, a, I've spent over 40 years exploring music listening. And was the idea of exploring it in a scientific or research capacity, was that always in the back of your mind or was it something that sort of happened later in life? No, it was always there. I think it was always there. It, it, the um, Scientists uh, have this intense curiosity and like artists, they really love the idea of getting to think for themselves. They really love the idea 
of working in a capacity where uh, their mind gets to be creative and they get to explore questions that are of interest to them, like being uh, selfish children in a way, but uh, you're a selfish child who just knows, if you would just let me, put me in a room and shut the door and just let me create or just let me explore, just let me think, I know I'll come up with something good. So the arts and the sciences are not all that different. I think we've got similar urges. The main difference, of course, is that artists are trying for individual expression and scientists are striving for collective expression. The scientists must report on, this is what's true of humanity, whereas the artist is saying, this is what's true of me. What were some of those, um, those questions that piqued your curiosity that you actually got to investigate with your research? I started by investigating the origins of consonance and dissonance. I wanted to know why the perfect fifth was so dang perfect and why the tritone was once called diabolus in musica, the devil's chord, the devil. Why, why? Um, I, I wanted to know what's the reason for that and is it a natural origin? Is it a brain origin or is it just a practice? Um, that was my doctoral thesis. And then I, I also explored auditory short-term memory. Hardest thing I ever studied in college was memory and how memory works. That's an incredible mystery. Uh, my most recent research is concerned with visualizations to music listening. What we picture in our mind's eye, what sort of treat, what sort of visual treat you're hoping to experience when you choose your favorite records. Do you talk about this visualization at all in your book, This Is What It Sounds Like? I do. The, the second chapter on realism versus abstraction develops an idea that I first read about from the Nobel laureate, Eric Kandel. He wrote a little book called Reductionism in Art and Brain Science. And he's talking about advances in visual art and painting and uh, how that relates to his, his memory work. But it just, uh, it, it totally rocked my world when I read that because I realized the music business, the exact same thing, the thing that happened to painters when the camera was invented in the 1840s is the exact same thing that happened to my generation of record makers when the laptop computer was invented. Um, my generation of recording engineers, we, our craft, our skill was in going into the recording studio and capturing reality, choosing our microphones, placing our instruments in just right spots and, and, and honing sound so that the listener could have the experience of imagining that they were there, right there in the studio. I could picture the band right in front of me. That was our job. And then someone came along with a little laptop and said, oh, you want a perfect kick drum? Oh, let me just type a few things. Oh, I got it right here. Ding, 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 ding. And now with samplers, music can live in our phones and in our laptops and in our computers. So those skills that my generation of engineers prized uh, are no longer as prized. Just like the painters who captured reality with their canvas and their paints, it wasn't as prized after the, the camera came along because you can just take a photograph. There's your family portrait right there. It's a lot easier and cheaper. So uh, yeah, I, I do talk about visualizations in the book because some of us, when we listen to music, want to picture the musicians. We want the fantasy of seeing them right there on the stage, picturing them. They're right there in front of us. So we like our realistic records because you can picture bass and drums and piano and saxophone, but uh, many folks today prefer the more abstract records that are made by musical instruments that don't physically exist. They're the product of sound design tools. You can't picture it because you've never seen it. You've never seen it because it doesn't exist. Some of these sound design objects. So we all have our preferences. We all will choose records to give ourselves the sort of fantasy that we want. The folks who like the more abstract records tend to prefer the visualization of seeing abstract shapes and colors or seeing other worlds, fantasy worlds, uh, science fiction sort of scenes. That's what the research indicates uh, so far. So do you find that there's difference in like 
age demographics based on what you just said in terms of like the technological changes and record production do you feel like it changes our relationship with music as consumers based on age Oh, very much. Yeah. So uh, in the research that we did, we found that it was more likely to be for good reason, the older listeners who chose music to listen to, to experience nostalgia, the good feelings of nostalgia, to be able to picture the people and the places and the events in their lives. So they'll choose music that reminds them of these of these scenes and conjures up these scenes. Young people were less likely to choose music for nostalgic reasons they have fewer memories. They were more likely to choose music for inspiration and were uh, certainly more likely to choose the more abstract modern records than the older realistic records. So a lot of people are wouldn't be as involved with their music listening enough to have that visualization piece. I'd say a lot of people now are very passive music listeners and how can people gain that piece if it doesn't come naturally to them? How can they sort of advance their relationship with music to listen on that deeper level? We looked at that and it turned out of all the folks we surveyed, there was nearly 1700 of them of all ages in the United States. There was a fairly large percentage, it was under 10%, but a large enough percentage of listeners who claim to not visualize anything when they listen to music. Um, I wrote the book that I wrote, which is called This Is What It Sounds Like, um, in order to encourage folks who love music to get better acquainted with their own listener profile. And I'm describing what the listener profile is and how it reflects the music of you. So we choose different styles of music for different contexts, but when your hand reaches for that record. It could be vinyl, or it could be a CD, or it could be your playlist. When you're reaching for your phone and you're choosing this one song of all the many songs you could be listening to, what that's showing you is your brain is saying, I want this. Look at what it wants. Does it want a groove? Does it want a rhythm? Does it want to move right now? Maybe it wants to be amped up. Maybe it wants to be calmed down. When you choose that record, were you perhaps thinking of a, a mood, a feeling? Did you want to match that soaring feeling in your heart or that sad feeling in your heart or that uh, anxious feeling in your heart? Maybe you're looking for the melody. Maybe you need to solve a problem. Or maybe you just want to hear a cheerful voice. Maybe you're choosing that record for the lyrical content. Maybe you need to be inspired and you're choosing a record for the style. The woman who just interviewed me for the Wall Street Journal was telling me about, uh, she didn't tell me the details, but there's an awkward story she's going to have to report on. And it's going to involve some awkward conversations. And she's going to have to take a plane to travel to this destination to, to interview some folks. And she was saying, and I need a piece of music to give me the feeling that I need to go in there and do this. I need to be compassionate and strong and a good reporter and I need to be brave. And I'm looking through my music library to find just the piece of music that's gonna be just right for me to get me there. Don't we all do that? Isn't music first and foremost functional? And don't we subconsciously say to ourselves, I need this right now. No. I would strongly encourage folks to pause, just pause for just a beat. Next time you select a piece of music, choose it, listen to it, scan it, and ask yourself, what is it about this record excuse me, that made it just perfect for me right now. Why this record and not that record? What is What treat is this giving me? That will make you, uh, it'll, it'll get you closer in touch with the music that you love. So I hear you talking about sort of using music as a tool and very intentionally, which I love. Um, why do you think music is not often utilized in our healthcare system if we can use it in a very purposeful way? And how do you think we might change that in future years? 
Yeah, it's not for want of effort and not for want of research, not for want of desire. There are so many music therapists and music researchers who are addressing that question and saying, hey, folks, look around here. Look at how beneficial music is in a therapeutic setting. Why aren't we doing more of this? Uh, uh, perhaps it's just not greatly appreciated. We must also remember, this is important, for many of us, our relationship with music is entrenched and it's strong. We can't imagine life without it. I mean, music helps us to thrive, but we also have to acknowledge that for a lot of people, music just isn't that important in their lives. They're getting all that joy. They're getting the serotonin and the dopamine release and all that joy, maybe in sports or maybe in hmm, other art forms or maybe just in their social lives. So that's kind of, I think, perhaps a mediating factor. Maybe when the decision is made in the boardroom to decide to put money toward bringing music therapists on board in a certain setting, there might be people in that room who are saying, well, why do we need that? And really don't see it, really don't see it. I think a challenge is to, um, well, this is what I'd like to do. I'd really like to have those folks talk about music's role in their own lives and actually become more aware of how music is more functional for them than what they might have uh, realized in the past. Maybe, maybe you know, someone might say, well, you know, music's not that important to me. Well, let's examine that. Let's see. Did you have anything played at your wedding? Uh, what sort of music do you, do you recall hearing at funerals? Uh, what, what sort of music do you recall accompanied you at that dance or just whatever it was? And they, they may confess that music's more important than what they once believed. I think it's exciting that you talk about the functionality of music. Uh, we look a lot at functionality of music just for these specific neurodegenerative diseases for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, but I do appreciate that you're talking about the functionality of music for everyone just in their day-to-day -day life. Um, and because of that, do you think there are other applications of music therapy that you feel would be impactful even beyond like senior care or um, younger individuals? Wouldn't it be nice if we could think of music the same way we think of yoga? So this this past 20 some odd years, you know, folks began discovering yoga and um, yoga pants are now ubiquitous, even among folks who shouldn't be wearing yoga pants. You see them <laughs> everywhere. And there's yoga classes and, and, and the yoga mats and People are choosing yoga for a very good reason, for increased mindfulness and increased calm and reduction of stress and getting in touch with themselves. Wouldn't it be nice if it were widely known that music can do the exact same thing? Music listening, deliberate active music listening. When I was a kid, in the younger generation, music listening was an activity. You'd go to your friend's house to listen to music not do anything else. We are going to listen to music and music today, of course, with earbuds and headphones. It's private, it's personalized. It's a background activity that accompanies the foreground activity of something else that you're doing. But wouldn't it be nice if it were popular to have regular music listening sessions with yourself, to just sit and listen, be mindful of how this listening experience is befriending you, teaching you, inspiring you, comforting you, calming you down, amping you up, matching your mood, changing your mood. If there were greater awareness of that, I think uh, that that would be, it would be quite good for us all. I'd be very curious to know what it would be like to sit and listen to music like that and do a sort of stream of consciousness journaling, sort of access the subconscious and what's going on and how this music speaks to your individual music profile. I think that would be really fascinating. You could do that. The other thing, the thing that, that I would find delightful about it is we know that music listening activates our default network, at least listening to the music that we love activates it. And the default network is the region of the brain that gets active when we daydream and mind wander. 
I am a strong cheerleader for adults daydreaming and mind wandering. Mind wandering is the precursor, it's the seed of creativity. So what if you didn't give yourself any task at all? What if you just sat there for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you took your brain off its leash? You let your brain know, go anywhere you want, anywhere you want. I'm not gonna tell myself to think or do anything. Just listen to music, go where you wanna go. You may find that your brain says, woohoo, you finally got us away from a screen. You finally got us away from a book or from a, from, from, from a conversation. Off we go. And your brain takes off and it goes exploring like a dog at the dog park. And it might find something. It might find something that makes it say, yes, that's the idea I can use. And now you're going to switch over from this mind wandering to a goal-directed uh, activity to you just got inspired you just got you just got creative this is not unlike what happens when we take a long shower or when we take a long walk in the woods and we give our our brain permission to just unplug and just go where you want to go go where you want to go that's interesting to me I am really enjoying this conversation, but I also don't want to take up the entire time. So I'd love to open it up to John or Carol or Angela for any questions you might have for Dr. Rogers. I'm good. Right. I, want to, I want to say that um, the priceless gift that you and Dr. Tremo gave us was during the Q&A when you were on the platform at the Semmel Institute and a listener asked about Music Men's Minds. And the both of you weighed in on the gift of Music Men's Minds and how we're gifting our seniors with their neurodegenerative issues. And we've got that little precious two minute that we will share globally because that it was just the essence. It was in the pocket for us the way the both of you handled the, the the question thank you so great i mean we can we can describe it um in terms of biology and then we can also describe it in terms of experience uh we know that uh, uh singing increases uh, salivary immunoglobin and that that helps protect us from bacteria and viruses. We know that music participation and singing is the most common and the easiest one, that that uh, helps prevent aging and that it helps decrease the risk of infection, things like that. We know how physically good those neurohormones of dopamine and serotonin are for us. And we know that music is so effective at releasing those things. So yeah, that's the mechanism. But experientially, we also know that when we're making music with others, it connects us to others and it makes us feel less alone. And that's a feeling of warmth and it's a feeling of uh, relevance and importance. I am part of something that is bigger than me. That feels really good, gives you a sense of importance and a sense of belonging. We need that when we're toddlers. We need that through every stage of our lives. To be deprived of music later in our lives is, is, is in some way to be deprived <laughs> of other people. And no one wants that. So, yeah. We, we need music at all stages, but in, in particular at that stage where we are at risk of losing connectivity with others. Uh, that's was one of the things that uh, uh, was on my mind when you were talking. Uh, one of the things that Music Men's Minds does beautifully is they bring people to a room and provide a socialization opportunity that they pretty much do not get uh, anywhere else. And you, you mentioned yoga. Yoga is it's a similar thing. You lie on a mat, you're doing your thing, but you're also doing it in a room with other people. And you're experiencing that sort of group experience. Uh, the dementia crowd uh, doesn't relate to that too much bec and, and because they're not given that many opportunities to do it. 
And you mm. go in, in, in our drum circles, the drum circles are a new thing for me. I'm the new kid on the block here for the last, you know, six months. And I'm seeing people that are have their head down, their chin on their chest, and they're, they're, and they're given a, a percussion instrument or a drum to beat and whatever like that. And all of a sudden they're doing it and their head is up and they're looking at other people and they're having a blast. And that just does not happen in their life. Yes. So you, you pair that with what you said about 15 minutes ago about reducing stress and stuff. And and what I saw clearly when I walked in the door and started having my first discussions with Carol and whatever is that this is a public health positive for people to reduce stress, it reduces uh, the chaos in the house. It opens up the, the lines of communication to the extent they're able to. Um, they're not going to need to take so much heavy meds and they're not going to overdose on them and they're not going to have chaos in the house and they're not going to go to the emergency room and all of a sudden the public health uh, infrastructure is saving billions of dollars. Yes. That is the, yes. best, the best argument for including music therapist reimbursement and group session reimbursement for people uh, just like physical exercise is. Uh, and that's become one of our major uh, tenets now. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and you, you brought up a little bit about uh, the communicating through music. You remember the really, really exciting moments in the Spielberg's movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when the aliens and the earthlings started communicating through tones and playing. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they got a commonality in the tone and they could answer with a tone. And all of a sudden, they were harmonizing with each other and talking to each other just with musical notes. Yes. It, uh, and, uh, you know, based in 1983 or whenever that started, people were like, well, what the hell is this? But it's, it's absolutely clear that it's a mathematical uh, language mm. as well. And um, I think we intuitively get that, whether we actually can put a name and a face to it. Mm. And there's another factor there as well, uh, and that's hearing health, mm -hmm. which is something that's very important to consider. Um, I'll tell you about one of the sweetest, dearest things I ever saw. In uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, is something called the Hearing Rehabilitation Foundation. And they do work with folks who are deaf and folks who are newly deaf, who may have just received a cochlear implant. And once a year, the director of the Hearing Rehabilitation Foundation has musical events. And uh, there was a trio there that was playing at this event, acoustic instruments. I think it was guitar and mandolin, and double bass. And sitting in front of me was a young couple, young man and young woman. And the young man was was deaf and uh, the young woman was his, both his therapist and his fiance. And they were sitting in front, of, in front of me. So I was watching them, I could see the sides of their faces. And she handed that young man a tambourine. He didn't know what to do with a tambourine, he's deaf. And uh, she, she kind of pointed him to the band and she put her hand on his arm to move the tambourine in time with the band. And he could see, I'm making this movement that the band is moving like this, I'm in sync with them. <laughs> I will never forget the look on his face. The way he looked at her, he was making music. It's more than just being able to hear it. It's that act of being having your body in sync with the bodies of others, whether it's other music makers or just the audience uh, that causes us to feel so good and is so vital to our well-being. Mm, gorgeous story. Mm, touches me. <laughs> it, was, it was so moving. You could just see. I saw a transformation on his face and such joy. It was really beautiful. We had an experience yesterday at our Fifth Dementia uh, band rehearsal and a, a newly diagnosed Alzheimer gentleman uh, is a saxophonist but he did he did play in a big band a while ago but now he's not up to it anymore and he was told that his playing days are gone 
and he is in mourning about his diagnosis and what's next. He is hopeless. And he came to our rehearsal yesterday after I'd encouraged his caregiver to bring his saxophone with him the next time. She said, no, no, he can't. I said, yes, he can. Just bring it. And yesterday he sat on stage with all of us participants with his trombone in hand and you could see him getting juiced up. And the next thing is he was blowing, he was making. Then our band leader who plays, um, not clarinet. Saxophone. Saxophone got on stage with him, had him stand next to him, the two of them standing together, and they began to play like nothing had happened. And he was as high as a kite, and the caregiver was speechless. Oh. Now, and why, why wouldn't this caregiver have known this? Why? Didn't know. And so... There are so many people that come our way. There's another one on our tri-weekly Zoom platform somewhere from Virginia, a, a lady who'd been given a diagnosis that no one wants to get. Her husband had left her. She's a mother of three daughters. And she heard about us, called, and was ready to put a the last nail in her coffin. And I said, Kathy, join us. She said, I packed up everything, it's over. And today we're watching her reborn with a magnificent voice. She took out her flute, she plays the piano and she's one of our key entertainers now on our tri-weekly Zoom platform that's global working with a board certified music therapist. Nice. So we see an endpoint of such total darkness and breathe one opportunity into their ear and say, let's play music. And we watch literally darkness turn into day. Mm. It so is staggering what we see in the way of saving lives of people out there needing the music. And for folks who don't play a musical instrument, percussion, and, and and singing right here yeah we we have a guy in the band who's the whistler <laughs> play, and we get a microphone to him and he does a whistle solo and he's quite good oh that's nice the fact that he can do that and sort of entertain and be a star and do it for a minute is as meaningful as the music mm. you get a sense of self you get a sense of worth uh, all of a sudden that you like carol was saying a minute ago that you give it up on yeah. And to put a microphone in their hand, this is a moment of re-empowerment. They have finally re-identified themselves because they've got a microphone in their hand and they're willing to give what they've got yes. in that microphone, feeling the safety in mm. the environment to allow their new identity to pop out. And we know from studies that music performs this function in a way that's not equivalent to what uh, painting or drawing, art or sports or uh, group exercise and things like that. Music is the, in every study that I've read is when compared with these other activities, music is more effective at mood elevation. It's more effective at improving quality of life and improving a lot of cognitive function. Whether these studies are conducted with little children at summer camp or conducted with uh, folks of all ages, music is the one that is extraordinarily effective at facilitating this change, this positive change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this Kathy that I was referring to, um, she's got a broken heart that she's revisiting uh, moment by moment in her life. She's been left holding the bag for daughters and without a husband. And she was working on a song that was about a broken heart. Mm -hmm. 
And she said, I'm working on this and I'm using my song. Can I sing it today? Nice. We all felt the broken heart. And afterwards, how do you feel, Kathy? I feel better. You know, there was a study that uh, asked people, what emotions does music express to you? And there was a list of 44 of them and the rank order. And the ones at the top were nostalgia and love and happiness and joy. And, and uh, the surprising thing was that sadness was at number eight. We uh, researchers are curious as to why we like sad music, but the current thinking is uh, because it makes us feel less alone. If you can put a sad song out there in the world, you've unburdened yourself. But for the receiver, for the listener, Hearing a sad song helps you to feel like, yeah, I'm not the only one that's felt this way. I can relate to you. I can relate to the sorrow in your heart. And that has the effect of diluting that emotion and spreading it out among, among us all. And that can help you feel good. So even the sad songs make us feel better. Part of, I think part of that is, goes back generations and generations to the fact that when most art was created, when early art was created, most of it was created with a religious intensity behind mm -hmm. the religious movement. And basically that religious movement said, you are nothing, you have no power, <laughs> you know, the great Lord is this and whatever like that, and you should be afraid. Oh. And, uh, and that's a lot comes of that. I have different... My wife listens to sad music and she can't do it all. It makes me too sad. I listen and I'm so pumped by the beauty that somebody has created a mood and stuff like that. It becomes happy for me. I I, I relish the creation of it, even though it sound, you may sound sad or lugubrious in the minor key or something like that. I think, my goodness, that was created. That emotion was created out of notes out of these little mathematical scales of sound. And somebody had the wherewithal to do that. And then it's been purified and, and petrified through time. Mm. And, and it connects you with an earlier age and in a sense of the seeds of humanity. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean this sounds highfalutin, but that's yeah. what goes through my mind. I know what you mean if you listen to Beethoven or you listen to music that was made such a long time ago or any any music that is really sublime. You feel the weight of a human life behind it and you can uh, detect the life experiences that led up to the creation of this piece uh, very easily. Music does that easily. Yeah, we uh, we talk now in 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 our sessions about when we talk to outsiders about the power of what it is we do. That we know the extension of our conversation is the fact that music should be taught to kids all the way through life to give them the armor and protection and the tools to deal with their life as they get older uh, by understanding more and being able to 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 use it more, express themselves uh, more with it, and enjoy it more. So mm -hmm. the conversation is never ending. <laughs> That's true. And what, we have, what, what we're bent on also is working intergenerationally because we see among our community members that the traditional skills of, of, of language fall away. And what then? Johnny is going to come home from school and sit next to grandpa and what's to discuss when the element of communication is lost between the two of them but they can strike up a song or an instrumentation and continue the language mm. as a new language till the end of time I mean my darling husband had a 15 year long journey and when he was ready to cross over lying in bed literally looking like a corpse mm. I would go in in the morning take my little shakers in I turned on the dancing queen in my nighty and start to move and rock and roll for him and sing. Firstly, it's my own therapy. And secondly, from this corpse position under the sheets, up came the hands. And he's working the rhythm with me. Then the knees. And he's literally dancing with me when nothing was left for a couple 
to stay connected. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. My my sweetheart Tommy is out and he's a musician. He's out in California. And his father recently passed away just a couple months ago. And dad was uh battled illness for several months. And um uh, Tommy was his caregiver and night and day, Tommy was at his side to help him through. And uh, just as you were saying, the, the thing that would kind of wake dad up, get him to smile is Tommy would sing to him. And when Tommy would sing to him, he, the dad would raise his arms and he'd conduct and he'd smile and sometimes he'd hum along. And um, that, was, that was a very, powerful way for Tommy to see what was going on, what's still going on with you right now, because at the very end of life, his, his poor father, there wasn't much there. And if Tommy wanted to measure, well, what is there? He could sing to his dad and dad would respond. Yeah. Well, this has just been such an evocative hour with you so informative and special and i'm so happy we know you and thank you for being in our lives and we'll be so proud to upload this conversation onto our spotify platform that is music is medicine ask the expert and so you're taking a place of honor in our presence present and future Thank you. Thank you so much. And Carol, I'm going to next time I'm out in California to see family and see Tommy, I'm going to email you and see if I could, if I could come. I want to see that fifth dementia orchestra. I can't wait. And I want to bring Tommy with me because he's so good. He's so good with uh, getting people uh, actively involved in music. I mean, he and I have known each other for 30 years, but that's what he did on stage so so well he's such a beautiful soul and he has uh such love for elderly folks just a, a big big heart and uh so uh, if tommy and i could come and visit you out there boy we sure would like that we'd love it we will make that happen so thank you thank you for your time and uh, we'll be in touch and to work together in some way and to be able to meet tommy mm. thank you all right. Well, good luck to you all. Uh, thanks for your help, Katie. And uh, nice Happy to meet Easter you. to you and yours. Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers, for joining us today on Music as Medicine, Ask the Expert. And we can't wait to hear more about your amazing work in the future. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Music Men's Minds, please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org. If you didn't know, Music Men's Minds is a nonprofit organization based in West Los Angeles serving seniors with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, PTSD, stroke, and traumatic brain injuries by using music to bring these seniors healing and joy. If this is a cause that you'd like to support, please consider donating to Music Men's Minds. We accept donations through our website. Thank you again to Dr. Susan Rogers for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.